Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to another episode of the Motormouth Podcast with me, Tim Sylvie. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined this week by a new guest host in the form of Nadia El Fadowsi, the brilliant F1 and lifestyle content creator. Go check her out at Nadia underscore Daily Self on Instagram. She and I are chatting with former F1 strategist Bernie Collins, who made the switch to broadcasting and became an instant hit with fans who enjoyed her analysis of the action. We chat about what shaped Bernie in her formative years, dealing with the gruelling F1 calendar and being on the road, life after leaving the paddock and turning her skills to the camera, and of course, the important subject of diversity in Formula One. I really hope you enjoy the show. Please do review us and subscribe. It makes a massive difference. Oh, and one more thing before we start. We're really excited to announce our partnership with The Racing Pilot. Uh, you can find their channel on Instagram and YouTube. Just search for The Racing Pilot. They're going to be showing exclusive content from our podcast to their massive audience. It's super exciting to have another way to reach more fans. It's great for this show. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get into it. Now, just before we come on to Bernie, I have to take a moment to welcome Nadia to her debut on the Motormouth podcast. Welcome. Great to have you here. Finally, I've been trying to get yeah. you on here for ages as a co-host. How are you? Yeah, I was just waiting until you had the perfect guest. So oh, I'm so glad good. to be joining today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Um, let's turn the attention to our guest, um, Bernie. First of all, Bernie, we like to, to go back in time a little bit, go back to your childhood, look at what shaped you as an individual. So where did you grow up? Where was home? Uh, what was your childhood like? Uh, yeah, firstly, thank you for having me on. Um, home was a very rural part of Fermanagh in Northern Ireland, so very, very different world to F1 in many ways. But I guess I always really enjoyed mathematics and physics, and that's what sort of brought me down the engineering route and then towards F1. So it wasn't always that I really wanted to work in F1 and I did everything I could to get there. It was sort of like it happened step by step and the engineering came first and then on to F1. I think it's really interesting, Bernie, I heard you on um, Irish radio the other day, you were talking about you chose subjects that um, you enjoyed and then 
that led into F1 later in life because a lot of people do it the other way around don't they so at least that way you know you're going to always have that passion for what you're doing I think when you're that age when you're like 14 15 16 you're making decisions on GCSEs or decisions on what you do in uni or whatever it's really difficult like I'd imagine when I was that age I didn't know what engineering was I didn't know what someone on the pit wall for F1 did and so I just I didn't know what I wanted to do so I thought I'll just do things I enjoy keep going that way and that's the advice I'd give to anyone really and because the hope is you know if you really enjoy mathematics or you really enjoy physics and hopefully the job you do at the end will and obviously those subjects aren't aren't for everyone by a long stretch but um yeah that was the approach I took because I didn't know and I didn't really have I guess loads of guidance to say this is what an engineer does or I didn't have like someone in my family that done those sorts of roles so I couldn't look at what they were doing at work so yeah it was a really interesting process I think for me. Was F1 on at home on TV Was somebody in your family? It would have been when I was very little you know when I was younger sort of primary school age F1 would have definitely been on at the weekend you would have watched some of it I wouldn't say I sat down every week and watched all of it but I definitely would have been aware of it I was aware of some of the drivers at that time you know we're talking like the Michael Schumacher sort of eras that sort of time and then I guess as you get further into school um, you maybe get more distracted you don't watch so much of that sort of at the weekend or you're away at uni or whatever the case may be so I guess it was a period where I watched a lot less. Bernie, when was it that motorsport came on your radar that you started thinking, I can apply perhaps some of these mathematics and, and physics things that I'm good at to, to the motorsport industry? Yeah, it was actually, I think it was quite late compared to a lot of people that do motorsport. I'd started engineering in Queens. Um, they had like a lot of the universities, have a mechanical engineering department, have a thing called Formula Students. So we build a little single-seater race car. We bring it to Silverstone. We race it against other universities. And it was a really good way of seeing like all of the the automotive. So you did design, you did some build, you did some driving, so a little bit of everything. And that was the first time I really started to think, oh, automotive could be something I get into or motorsport could be something I get into. Um, especially when you go to Silverstone. That was my first trip to Silverstone with um, the little university car. And we do like... Um, a straight line run on the start finish straight so you're like they're over the like old lights and the banner and stuff so it was really cool um and yeah that was what got me thinking that motorsport could be something to do in the future at that point so when you get to formula to get to formula one you have to be the best of the best whether you're a driver an engineer or you know whatever it might be a, a designer did you think at that point I'm better than all this lot. Like my 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 goal is going to be Formula One, and these guys are going to end up in Formula Four and never go any further. Could you already sense that you had a bit of a talent for applying motorsport alongside the academia? I think I think definitely not, and I don't know if that's like um something within my personality or probably quite an Irish way of looking at things potentially. But um, you know the the application came around uni to for the McLaren graduate scheme, and I didn't apply. And my lecturer was like, why have you not applied? And I was like, well, I just assume I'm not going to get it. So um, I didn't apply. And he encouraged us to apply. He said, everyone should be applying. And then you go through the stages of the interview process and you get further and further to the end. And two of us actually from the team got selected to go over to McLaren to do an assessment centre. And both of us went with the attitude of, we're getting to see around McLaren. So if nothing else, we've got to see around McLaren. And that was very much our attitude going into it. So I think, you know, when you're that age of, of having just done university, you've not graduated yet, 
your self-belief isn't there that you can do it or um, you don't have a lot of people to benchmark yourself against. You know, I wasn't the brightest in the class by by any stretch, um, but, you know, potentially bring other skills or people are more skilled in different things than you are. So, um, yeah, it was a really interesting process going through that. And I, I definitely wouldn't have done it without that sort of like last bit of encouragement. That's so interesting that you weren't going to apply and were the rest of your classmates applying? Other people were applying, yeah. Like, I think the other guy that went over to interview with me did apply or had applied by that stage. But I think it was, yeah, I don't know. I just, I hadn't, because it had not been my dream, you know, in my envisage. And it's one of those things, think of how different life would be now without that moment having happened. That's a real sliding doors moment, isn't it? So if, if it wasn't for the McLaren graduate programme, do you think you would would have found your way to F1 eventually? I don't think so, because at that stage, I was sort of planned to go. I'd been sponsored by a gas and chemicals um, company. That's where I was planning to, to go and work. And um, they're actually um, based in Ireland. They were based at the Intel site in Ireland. So it was a very, very different work experience I'd done to that point. And it was a very different route, potentially, that, you know, you were going to end up taking. Maybe, you know, the passion for motorsport would have come back and at some point you would have started to apply. But I think definitely when you've done a few years working in a different industry, it's maybe harder to shift across then, even though you have got some experience under your belt. And thankfully, you did end up working in Formula One and you've worked with some amazing um, drivers over the years, Jensen Button um, and others. Who, who's, who's been your favourite? Who, who's the nicest in terms <laughs> of, you know, daily interaction, feedback, just generally working with? It depends who's listening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, um, no, I've, I've loved working with, with all the drivers. I've worked with um, quite a few. I think the one that probably I work with with Checo Perez for the longest, so I do have a soft spot for Perez. Um, but the one I probably you know was the friendliest with is Sebastian Vettel. Sebastian was such like an honest character, so friendly, so approachable. Um, and I think maybe a little bit with Sebastian because he was a four times world champion at the time he came to Aston, there was this real fear about how difficult it was going to be to work with Sebastian because he's often been so critical of strategy. Mm. So there's a bit of apprehension before he came. So probably a lot of expectation managed. And then he came and he's this really lovely character and he's really helpful. And yes, he pushes really hard and he demands a lot of questions of the team and he demands a lot of improvement week on week. But he, I find him reasonably, you know, really good to work with. I find it funny with him because... Um, when he was going through those world championship years, he was not a, a liked character at all. And he, he was a bit of the, the the pantomime villain for for a number of years. And it wasn't until later in his career that he became this guy that everyone absolutely loves. It's weird how it switches like that and people can go from sort of vill villain to hero um, in the space yeah. of a few years. And I think it's been quite interesting that like a lot of the people, like even Jensen, he'd won his world championship when, when I worked with him. It was my first year at the track. So I think getting drivers at that stage where they've got a lot of experience under their belt, they're maybe not pushing for a world championship anymore. And they take a lot more time to go through things with you and explain things. You know, it was a really good introduction working with Jensen that first year. Um, and it's been quite interesting now speaking to him, you know, on, on the TV side since that. So it's been really interesting um, so far. No, I'd love to hear more about the day-to-day -day of working in Formula One, um, both working with the team, which you've done for years, and, you know, how's your work-life balance now that you're doing a completely different role but still in the same sport? 
Yeah, I think um, the team, working with the team changed year on year, I guess. Um, when it starts out, you know, sort of 2014, 2015, those first years that I was doing, there was 18, 19 races, um, I guess, because you're sort of young and no commitments at home. It's brilliant. You know, I really enjoyed the travel and I went to a lot of cities and places that I would have never been otherwise. I think, you know, what we class as the flyaways are much more interested than the Europeans just because you turn up a day earlier and you maybe stay a day later because of how the flights work out. Whereas the Europeans, you arrive Wednesday evening, maybe. Um, so you've got at most Wednesday, maybe Thursday night out in the city that you end up in. And then you leave on Sunday night. So the Europeans always felt really condensed and not a lot of time to see the city or much outside the track or, or the hotel. Whereas the flyaways, you'd sort of get in on a Tuesday. So you might have a bit of time, you know, during the day on Wednesday and you might leave to Monday. So you'd like a big night out on Sunday night. Um, and especially for the flyaways as well, there was um, a lot of opportunity to stay out and do some holidays. So we'd go to Australia, if you'd the next week off, we'd stay out and work from home there. So you do all your normal analysis. But it's very, you know, when the year starts for an F1 team, particularly now with the number of races, it's very tough. You know, you're working, you do the week before in prep for the race, you do the race, you do the week after in analysis. So if you've got a, a weekend that there's no race on, you maybe have a three or four day weekend with some blue days in there. But the other days you're working every single day. So you don't get a break. It's not like on Monday after the race, we have some downtime. You don't really, you're straight into your analysis. So it does become, you know, really tough, which is, I think, um, well known. The reason I left is, um, the triple headers in particular I find very demanding and um, physically demanding with the time shifting and you know the pressure on the pit wall and you know we've got a lot of emotion going on and um, so I did I did find it tough and that was one of the reasons for stepping away from the sport Um, I would have stayed if I could have missed a few races because you've done eight years traveling you've I've missed a lot of birthdays and a lot of weddings but I've not missed a single session I've not missed an FP1 for anything um even because you know doctors travel with you from the team so if you have a little niggle or a cold or whatever someone's there to give you something to sort you out and like get you through the no day <laughs> yeah exactly and you know that's that's how the team needs to operate I get it um so yeah the step away from it's been really really interesting for so many reasons so doing the broadcast side a bit of f1 that i've not really thought about before yes sure i've watched it on tv but i've not thought about what goes into making that um and when you're doing strategy on the pit well you're so focused on your two cars and the cars around it that you're racing but you sometimes miss the bigger picture so you could get to an end of a race, particularly in our midfield position, and not know who won. I know that sounds ridiculous, but you'd literally have to go and check who won the race. Um, whereas now watching it, you know, on TV, on the commentary box, you get to see the whole picture again. So you're getting to go back to that sort of watch it when you were younger, see the whole race, like see everything that's interesting that's going on without the the pressures on it. And um, so definitely it's a lot, it's a lot better work-life balance. And um, I feel sometimes now when I arrive at the track on a Sunday, it's a bit like rocking up at school without your homework done. Because before you'd have done hours and hours of analysis and now I've done like some analysis, but not loads. So it just feel a bit like, oh, you know, someone going to catch me out for not knowing the right answer here. Um, but it's much, I'm enjoying, you know, I'm enjoying being back in the paddock. and I'm enjoying, you know, the experience. Do, do you think um, that the season is now too long for the for the personnel that are working in it? Because we we... We were in, actually Nadia was there as well in, in Austin last year. And I remember walking down the paddock, talking to various people from different teams 
um, and there was Mexico coming up and everyone was pretty knackered already and, and people looked drawn out and tired. Is this, has it got a bit ridiculous with all these races? Do you think it's too much? For me personally, yeah, it was. It was too much. Um, I think the teams are trying to do a bit more rotation. So I know, you know, a lot of the teams, particularly for the mechanics, they get three or four races off and it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough to make a difference. It's enough to say, I've got this wedding I want to do or a little bit of a break through the year. Every year, even there's 18 or 19, you do this cycle of, you know, January, February, you're at home, you just want to get back to the track, you're fed up in the winter in the UK, you want to get out of the house and get to summer sunny. So you always go through this like excitement at the start of the year and then it wears you down through the year and by the winter you're ready for the break again. But I think that has got more intense with the number of races that have been added. I think there's a big discussion to be had within F1. I think it's already started, but we have the cost cap, which restricts what teams spend. That includes what they spend on people. And some of that cost cap is restricting an absolute ability to rotate people more, particularly the engineering functions. So there's something, you know, you got to be careful because teams will totally, you know, um, take liberties with it. If there's too much freedom in the regulation and that, for sure. But there has, I think there has to be, if we're going to continue to add races, there needs to be some sort of, attitude to to help that because at the moment very few of the teams are rotating particularly the engineers and um, a lot of the mechanics are getting to a good point in that where they're missing a few but it's still quite a lot of time away so so basically your the suggestion is that they either make certain travel elements or, or accommodation and things exempt from the budget cap so that you have a bit of flexibility there to rotate your your team yeah, so like from from my point of view, when I was doing strategy, if if I could have done half the races or two thirds of the races and had the other ones totally off, not be in mission control in the factory, I would have stayed. I would still be doing strategy in F one. Yeah. I, I loved what I did, um, but it gets to a point where you have to decide either your life's going to be fully committed to this and you're going to do the next twenty years at the track, or you've got to like promote you know a bit of self life somewhere. So if you could employ three people for two people's jobs and rotate them without having, you know, effectively what teams will see as a wasted expenditure, that sort of system would allow you to continue to keep your people fresh and, you know, not necessarily have the intellect drain that maybe we have at the moment. Does that, um, does that sort of re- regulation change take an, a very long time? Because it, when you talk about it here and now, you sort of think, well, that makes perfect sense. Just do it. Yeah. But the reality of it, is that something that's going to have to go through loads of red tape and bureaucracy before it ever happens? Yeah, I think so. I think it will have to. And I think, you know, like I said, teams teams will take liberties with it for sure. You know, every team's trying to get as much out of the cost cap as they can. So the FIA and teams will spend a lot of time debating with any of these regulations. What happens is someone suggests a regulation. To all of us, it makes perfect sense. There's no reason why you wouldn't do it. Then one team starts to think, does that um, is that more positive for another team than it is for us for whatever reason so teams start to think about their own position within this world is it positive or negative for them and then teams start to debate it and then teams start to worry about how other teams can use it to their advantage so if you think of you know we've got 10 teams in the pillion if you think of the red bulls of ferraris with big budget anyway where actually they're not they are limited by the cost cap they can easily employ the extra people that we're talking about. But the likes of Haas and Williams, maybe with less sponsorship money coming in, even if it wasn't for the cost cap, maybe that extra stretch and resources is stretched too far. Bernie, what are you looking forward to this upcoming season? Um, 
The big thing I think this season, and let's let's wait um, to see what happens on Saturday in Bahrain. I'm very much on the point that until we see qualifying, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen. But um, every time that we have stability in the regulation, the the grid should close. Um, now, obviously, we didn't regulations come in, you know, a few years ago, and Red Bull had a very dominant year last year. But the grid should close. So I'm hoping that we have a much tighter championship this year. Um, I'm really excited to see what particularly Mercedes or McLaren can bring to the party. Um, Oscar Piastri's got another year under his belt, has got to really push Lando Norris um, yeah, and have Mercedes class. sorted out the issues that they had for the last few years. They're, they're, uh, they are a strong team, so I'm surprised it's taken them this long. Um, but those are um, that's what I'm going to be watching Barry and Q3. Do you think that Oscar could get his first win before Lando's first win? Yeah, I think it's possible. You know, I think Oscar's really, you know, really strong, proven last year. You know, the mental capacity's there, the speed's definitely there. Um, and that first win is going to come, you know, if Oscar was very, very strong in qualifying always and then lacked a little bit in the race. So if over the winter he's been fit to work on those elements of his race pace that have made him not as good as um, Norris in, in the finishing position, he can definitely bring it. Um, so, yeah, there's no reason why not. There's, It's got to be an even chance there. Obviously, we've, but at the time of recording, we've had the car launches have finished. They're all done and dusted. Have you started having a, a closer look at the cars to see the ones that you think, ooh, like that, that steak or that Visa Cash app, whatever it's called, that looks quite good. That's got, you know, some nice shape to it or some elements that you think might might make a difference. Um, Not so much, actually, because I think that often some of the launches, not quite all the parts you're going to see on the car. So I think you sort of need to wait to day three testing or, you know, um, we'll see it in the flesh walking up and down the pet lane. So I'm I'm going to hold out until Bahrain. And obviously aerodynamics is not my background, so not my strong point either. So what I think might look good might actually be a terrible idea. Um, so you've got to sort of be realistic about where your things lie. Also, we need to figure out what we're going to call oh. Visa Cash App because I can't say that. And I can't can't call them RB because that's too yeah. close to Red Bull. So I don't know what Just we're going to do. Yeah. yeah, what's the official line on that? I heard somebody calling them V V. B-card? B-card. B-card. Yeah, B-card. Yeah, B-card. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Or um, RB. People are starting to refer to it as RB. But even in text, like RB is too close to RBR. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, it's a bit like with, <clears throat> with the Stake F1 team. There's a, there's a lot of journalists that just still call it Sauber. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to refer to Sauber. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the the, the done thing. Um, and I think that car looks good though, doesn't it? Oh, do you think so? Yeah, I do. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, oh, everyone's fed up of all the black, but I think the the green, I like the bright green, it stands out. Does it not make you think of your local supermarket chain, Asda? <laughs> no, we don't have it in Ireland. <laughs> do you not? What? No. You don't have Asda in Ireland? No, not well, not here, not in the Republic of Ireland. No. Um, I I don't mind it. I just look. I was there at the launch and. Uh, it looked cool under lights, like it looked wicked, you know, everything flashing away and there was green everywhere. And I like that they've got an identity, but it just, I don't know, it just didn't, didn't do it for me. The design I didn't think was, was all that flash and all I could think was Asda and, and I couldn't, now I can't unsee it. 
it looks a bit leery and I think when I watched um, the launch my favourite bit was Bottas just looks like he should be playing yeah. darts he just looks like a darts he player does. he's got like that t-shirt that's just exactly that that's all I can see and I can't unsee I, I just think he's Bottas. really enjoying his, his life at the moment isn't he yeah. he looks like he's he's just got it he nailed is, yeah he's chilled yeah yeah, yeah he's, he's I, I like his sort of his vibe and uh, and I've liked <laughs> I've seen his buttocks far too many times um <laughs> Let's move on to um, women in motorsport, which is a subject that's, you know, I appreciate, you know, this, this gets spoken about a lot, but it's important. And, and, you know, as a woman in motorsport, I'm sure it's important to you that people do continue to talk about it and it doesn't get um, brushed under the carpet. Um, you, you started working in Formula One around 2009, so well over a decade. Have you seen things changed in that time? We've obviously got the likes of Chadwick and you and F1 Academy and W Series coming and going and uh, Kate Bevan at More Than Equal with with Coulthard and Susie and females in motorsport, which are doing, you know, wonderful things for, for exposure. Have you seen the landscape changed in terms of actual um, tangible results? By that, I mean more women in the paddock, whether they're engineers or, you know, in certain positions, marketing or whatever. Have you seen a difference? Yeah, I think so. I think when I, in 09, I joined McLaren in the design office. That was my first role after doing the graduate scheme. And that stage in the design office, I don't think there was another female. I was the only female in the entire of design at McLaren. Even when I went to, when I went racing with McLaren or then when I went racing with um, Aston Martin, the Aston Martin engineer team, I was the only female. And there was no females on the mechanics either. So the females were marketing or hospitality. Um, And now when I left, across the pit wall, there's five of the 10 strategists are female. So you've got you know, it's quite well representative, definitely in terms of strategy. Um, I think a lot because a lot of strategists have done mathematic degrees rather than engineering degrees. So there's more coming through. Um, it's not so well representative when you look at mission controls, the people behind those women at the factory. It's still predominantly a male team, but it is a lot stronger than it has been in the past. You know, when I left <clears throat> Aston, there was, you know, another female traveling as part of the design office for us and doing reliability. There was another female doing engines from HPP Mercedes. So there was a lot of females coming through in different positions. You see more now in the mechanics crew and the pit crew. You know, there's still a girl who actually used to be at, at Force India's now with Alpine. So there are more coming through and it's more visual. I think obviously things like F1 Academy get a lot of stick for, for what they represent or some negative press at least. But the number of people I've seen that have watched it with their kids and then their little girls at home have seen, oh, you know, a girl can do that. Like, that's interesting. Um, and that's a bit I hadn't really maybe envisaged before because I think there's something like 1% of carters in the UK are female. So to get the top 20 to be any of those female, the numbers just don't stack up. The same is true of engineering. Like when I was an engineer and it was 10% female. So like you said, you're trying to get the best into the roles in F1. So if the numbers that are joining are so small, you're really going to struggle to get the better ones out of that. Um, and I think, you know, it's real, the change is coming on positive because they're happening gradually. Nobody's saying your F1 team needs to be 50-50 because we're just not going to achieve that. Um, everyone wants to get the roles because they deserve to be there because they're good at their jobs, whatever the case may be. And that's how I felt through my time. Um, but it, it, it has definitely improved. And I think some of what we do now in the media, um, you know, myself included in that, is promoting engineering as a, you know, a female role. 
um, and is promoting F1 as something that people get involved in. And, you know, things like Drive to Survive, the audience has changed um, and it's really positive. Have you experienced any issues being a woman in motorsport? I mean, I think we've seen before in interviews that you didn't really think about that you were the only women in the room in a, you know, in a, in a strategy meeting or whatever it might be. Is, is that because you're simply not treated any differently and you've, you've not, you've not felt that being a woman affects you in any negative way? Yeah, I think it's been interesting. I've been involved in some, a lot of conversations recently around it. And some of the things that stand out is no one ever told me I couldn't do it. So I never really thought about not being able to do it or not. I never thought about engineering being a man's job. Um, so I just I just didn't think about it. I naively just carried on um, and I just knew I wanted to do it. So it didn't really matter. And then I think when I joined F1, you know, in the early years, when I think back to it, if you were going to the machine shop or whatever with a drawn, there'd be quite a few questions from, you know, whoever was making it. But I think those were questions to any young engineer because they were a bit like, oh, what do you know? You're straight out of uni. Like, I want to question you about this. I don't think it was because it was female. Um, and you get a, a bit of reaction. I'd say more so outside the sport. So particularly when I was doing gearbox design at McLaren and I was saying I was a gearbox designer, people were like, well, that sounds like quite a male thing. But it was in the sport, it was, you know, I never had any of that um, feeling. I never felt that I was being treated or judged in any way. I didn't feel like I missed any promotions or wasn't put forward for things. I worked very hard to get to the track, but I don't think any harder than my male counterparts did, um, particularly given the route I'd taken into it. And then I think, you know, I've spoken in the past, I think there was some real advantages at times to it. Um you know, being the only Northern Irish female voice on the pit wall, I really stood out. Nobody ever had to ask who said that. It was very obvious that I'd said that. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's some things like that that I think, you know, worked to my favour at times. I'm not saying you should necessarily do it for that reason, but I never felt that um, people treated me differently. I think everyone at F1 is there for a single goal. And if you're good enough, you'll make it. And if you work hard enough, you'll make it. And that's sort of how I felt. Your team in the last year has had a lot more women around you, haven't you? You know, working with the, the Sky team. So has, has has that been different? Has that been nice? It's been, this, you know, the switch to, to the media to Sky has been really interesting in the fact that and because you travel so much in the past, so you get the same flights on a Sunday or you get the same, you felt like I knew a lot of those guys and girls anyway and um, so that's felt very different. And then the switch, the, I haven't actually felt the, switch from being you know more females and um, that bit but the bit that's very different is the engineering meetings are very different now like the engineering meetings before are very technical and exact and everyone's got their time to speak and now it's like much more to be it's like everyone's opinion and stuff and that's the bit I struggle with more than anything but yeah it has been great in a way you know I've not if you, I've always worked in F1 which is odd um and then I've done engineering for five years before that so the last time I was in a female dominated environment, I was 18 at school. So it's been quite a long time. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's been quite a long time since I've been in this sort of more female dominated environment. So there have been elements that are very, very good. You know, I'm probably better at doing my makeup and my hair than I was before. But it's it's been really it's been really nice to change, you know, to, to have a bit more of that. It's been great. So so basically what you're saying is that when when you uh when you're in a, a production meeting from a broadcast perspective, you, you basically have to dumb yourself down so that so so that everyone else can keep up. Well it's because it's, quite it's not even that it's just that I need to um 
appreciate that a lot of it's going to be opinion based on very little fact. <laughs> yeah. Tim, yeah. you're trying it's to put words into Bernie's mouth. <laughs> I totally am. I totally am. I don't mean it at all, obviously. Um, before we come on to our final three, which we ask everybody, um, one one final thing, you know, coming from that sort of strategy background, who, who are the teams that really nail it when it comes to strategy? I mean, there's a sort of running Jake, the Ferrari often shoot themselves in the foot, but who, who's, who are the teams that really, really get it right? So for me, I think we did a lot of analysis when we were um, doing F1 and we were comparing ourselves to others and what we did right and what they did wrong. And for me, I think Red Bull very regularly are on it with the strategy. It's very rare that they make a mistake in their strategy. And often it, you'd spend a lot of time figuring out why they've made a decision or how they've been fit to do it so quickly. So I think for me, the standout needs to be Red Bull. I think it's be very difficult for others to disagree with that, hopefully. But obviously every team feels they do well at strategy. I think even, you know, like the Ferrari one's really interesting. And, and I think that they do get a lot of stick. You know, obviously they're quite more in the limelight than we used to be I guess from strategy decisions they just seem to be like I don't think the strategy team are bad I think sometimes there's some indecision coming from management or that filters down the line or a bit more you know when I was an Aston I had a power just to, to make a decision and it would just get done um whereas if I had to check it with several layers of management you know that's how you miss the decision under a safety car or it really delays stuff you need to be quite efficient and um, so I'm really you know, I think we started to see it, but I'm really interested to see how the Fred management changes Ferrari strategy. He's not doing strategy, but if he can free up the decision process, it's going to be, you know, it'll be exciting going forward. And surely that's something that Lewis had to have asked before deciding to go to Ferrari for next season. Like he's got to see yeah. some differences like coming up. Yeah. And I think, I think it is just going to be the team structure, the management, you know, I was really lucky at Aston that the, the right side of the pit wall so sort of team principal side they very rarely got involved in the strategy decisions um, and normally it would be after the race they'd ask why you'd done something but you never heard them live during a race you just were free to make your decisions and I get the impression that's not the case there or at least wasn't the case there um, so yeah I think you know Lewis obviously knows something about Ferrari we're all shocked I think by that decision so he's obviously been been told something that we don't know and they've obviously convinced him to go there so yeah it'd be interesting to see what he said yeah, uh, it it will be interesting. I mean, his his whole package there sounds pretty big. Um, you know, it goes beyond the racetrack. So um sounds like a good move for him on a number of levels. Um, so we have a final three questions, uh, Bernie, that we ask everybody, and they always throw up interesting and different answers. Nadia, I didn't brief you on this, so um I'm I'm just hoping you've got a printout of the questions there. Yeah. Um, but um I'm gonna throw it straight to you, Nadia, um, for our first of our final three. Bernie, tell us what has got you excited at the moment. It doesn't have to be anything to do with Formula One. I know I think you're a bit of an adventure junkie outside of the sport as well. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so maybe it's that, but yeah, let's let us know what's got you excited. Well, actually, the first thought that comes to mind is, um, and this is going to maybe be a bit boring for those in F1, but 2026 sustainable fuel, that's quite exciting for me because if we can kneel the sustainable fuel, that allows us a way to continue to do the motorsport that we love, um, but in a much, much greener way and, you know, could solve so many of the issues that we currently have going on in the world. So I'm excited to see that. I wish it was coming sooner, but I'm really excited to see how that progresses because, um, that could maybe allow me to keep my power car and feel a bit less guilty about it. Yeah, yeah. I've I've gone fully electric, so 
I'm I'm sitting here smug. Although I'm not sure how sustainable electric cars are in reality. <laughs> exactly, but, yes. But, but whatever, you know. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think it'd be interesting to see how that, that technology advances. Um, what's one lesson your job has taught you that you think everybody should learn at some point in their life? Um, probably doing more analysis. I don't think people do enough analysis. So even like... And um, now when I do some stuff um, for Sky on TV, I'll try and watch it back and see what could I have done differently or what could I have said differently. Um, and we're probably not, you know, in F1, we do a lot of analysis after everything. Um, and there's a lot that different industries can learn from that. So it's just how can we go back and be really critical about what we did? God, that's brave watching yourself back. Do, do your colleagues <laughs> do the same? It's, well, it's oh, I don't not sure, but you know, even even on on the pit wall for F one, I'd listen back to the intercom and I'd listen to what I said or when I said it or how I said it, um, and you actually you learn a lot. It's not a fun experience, but you learn a lot. Okay, that's a good lesson. Okay, um, <laughs> lastly, what are you scared of? I'm scared of um, getting things wrong. My biggest fear in the past was um, actually when I was in F one was falling on my way to the pit wall. Because that's that's live on TV, right? So yeah. it's just like has it ever happened? Oh, this few... No, it's never <laughs> thankfully happened. But like I've seen quite a few people like get off the pit wall and miss their step, and then so it just I always had this fear that it would just be me, you know, in the pit lane like lying on the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they're quite high those chairs, aren't they? Yes. The, the, the telemetry pair, you could easily yeah. topple off one of those. Or sometimes yeah. there's like a fence between you. So that was always a big fear, and I guess that's probably the same um, now on TV is um, some sort of faux pas like that. Yeah. yeah. What about your 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 first broadcast? You must have been pretty terrified when the camera started rolling for the first time. Um. So this is going to sound very naive, but um, I guess because I'd done some marketing stuff before for teams, I just didn't really think about it. So I didn't think about how many people watched F one or how you know. I guess I went in maybe to that first race, which was Jeddah last year not really knowing how much I would do for Sky, like how much of the live stuff I'd do that weekend. And then I think I ended up doing way more than I'd expected. Um, and, then, and, you know, you can definitely see that at that point I was a bit le- less confident and I'm getting better time on time. And then definitely when I did commentary, like I don't know that people know, but when you do commentary, you do it in this quite small room. There's three of you with a few screens. You can see the track, but it feels like, feels like three of you down the pub watching F1 talking about it. Um, and during that first race that I did, which again was Jetta, as I'm speaking, people are texting me. So I'm getting messages through from like friends in America or friends in Australia and stuff. And I'm like, God, I didn't think about how many people are listening to me right now. So I ended up just having to like take my watch off and turn my phone off and go, right, I need to not think about how far this is It was going. probably a good thing that um, you didn't, you weren't yeah, overthinking. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you had such good feedback and, you know, everybody said that the what you brought to the commentary and to the broadcast was missing before, you know, an engineering point of view. And do you think that it has everything it needs now? Or is, if you could choose one more element to add to the Sky Sports broadcast, what would it be? To any of it, I would probably add more data. Like I'd love to see more information on the screens for the fans. Because even when you're watching, you know, I try and watch at home the ones I'm not doing. And um, when you're watching, I'm a bit like, oh, I'd really like to see like this or that. And I know I'm coming at it from a very technical point of view, but um, I'd, so we're going to work on that we're going to work oh. on some more of the graphics and some more of the explanations so hopefully you know that continues to improve over time and um, that's the bit I'd like to see some more of um, going forward and hopefully yeah the feedback's been brilliant I think that one of the things that's 
that's different is I'm very different to the other people in Sky. So I didn't have a benchmark and that made it actually quite easy to do because didn't really, you know, I wasn't going, oh, they're doing something quite different to what you're doing. And even now when I look at other sports like football or whatever, um, they've got a lot of ex-footballers or a lot of ex-managers, but maybe not so many, you know, tacticians that are deciding the team or people that are deciding how they're going to play it or um, training coaches or whatever. So it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah. No, it's great. And, um, you know, massive congratulations for all the success since you, you stepped away from the, the pit wall and into the broadcasting world. Um, and uh, all the best for the future. But thank you so much for joining us on the Motormouth podcast. And thanks, Nadia, as well, for stepping in and making your podcast debut. Hopefully you'll be back <laughs> and you won't just wait for another Irish person to come on. <laughs> Only for, Irish for women. <laughs> Just Irish women. Okay, I'll, I'll work <laughs> yeah. on that one. Okay, but for now, um, Bernie, we'll see you trackside, I expect. But thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. See you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 